our focus for this evening is on Onesimus. Onesimus. I think if there's two men in Paul's life that are particularly intriguing, it is the man Onesimus and the one associated with him, Philemon. Two men who are very intriguing as we read the account of Paul's life, not because of what they were able to accomplish as part of some great missionary endeavor, although they were involved in Paul's ministry, but they are so intriguing because their lives deal with an issue that we all know is is a very sensitive issue, a very important issue, the issue of slavery. These two men, Onesimus and Philemon, are on opposite sides. As we're going to learn tonight, as we look at Onesimus, we're going to look at a man who was the slave. And when we look in two weeks at Philemon, we'll look at the man who was a slave owner. And this is so vital for us to study because what's fascinating about these two men's lives, it it, it comes together in this letter to Philemon that Paul writes. The letter to Philemon is the most personal of Paul's letters, intensely personal. In fact, it's so personal and situational that in, in many regards, it's amazing that it made it into our Bibles. This letter that Paul writes as a personal a personal plea to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus makes it into the New Testament, makes it into the canon, makes it into that authoritative standard for us that speaks to us today as the living oracle of God. Why is that? Why does that personal letter, that personal plea, make it into our Bibles? And we will look at some of that this evening and then some of that in two weeks as we turn to look at Philemon. But tonight... Our focus is going to be on Onesimus. Onesimus, who is a demonstration of grace. And as we study his life, we're going to see this demonstration of grace as we trace the progression of Onesimus' life. We're going to first see how it begins with him as a slave. Onesimus, the slave. And then how we trace his life from being a slave to being a fugitive. And then from being a fugitive, number two, to being a convert, number three, and then to being a brother. And as we trace this development in the life of Onesimus, as one of these men around Paul, we'll see the amazing demonstration of divine grace in one who at that time uh, would be considered one of the least, if not the least, worthy of recipients of divine favor. Let's look first at Onesimus' background before we get into that progression from those four points. The name Onesimus literally means profitable or useful. It's an interesting name, and and, uh, Paul is going to actually provide some play on this name later on in his letter as he draws out a conceptual play on words, not using the same the same uh, exact terms, Greek terms, but he's going to talk later on about how Onesimus was not useful, but now is useful. And then he's going to say in verse 20, he's going to say, Paul is going to say to Philemon that Paul wants benefit from Philemon, using that term to refer to Philemon. Paul only mentions Onesimus in his letter to the church at Colossae. One brief reference in chapter 4, verse 9 
of Colossians. And of course, Onesimus fills the, 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 the text of the letter to Philemon. He's the focus of Paul's letter to that individual who is a member of the Colossian church as well. What we can tell about Philemon as well, when just generally speaking, when we look at, at the text, we see in Colossians 4 verse 9 that he is called Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Paul is writing to the Colossian church. He calls Onesimus one of you, which suggests that Onesimus grew up. He was a native in, a native to that area of, of, of Colossae, the Lycus River Valley a part of what was sometimes called Phrygia in, in old terms. Onesimus was from there. That's, that was his native area. Now, Paul never visited Colossae, so when we ask the question about how these two men could have known each other, it certainly wasn't because Paul had met him in Colossae. Paul had never been to Colossae, and, and so he had never seen Onesimus in that context. The best... Uh, understanding of the chronology and details of these men's lives is to place Onesimus actually in Rome. And that it's most likely to see that Onesimus first spends time with Paul when Paul is under house arrest during his first Roman imprisonment. And we read of that at the very end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, verses 13 and 31. Luke leaves off his history of the early church by referring to Paul being two years under house arrest in Rome. And under house arrest means that Paul is able to receive people to, to fellowship. People can come and visit him, but he just can't leave that particular dwelling. He's, he's chained there to another centurion and, and he can't leave, but he can receive people and people will come and minister to his needs. And so he has the stream of people coming in and it's best to see that Onesimus becomes one of those who comes across Paul's path there in Rome. And so we can basically trace the timeline to this. When we look at Paul's, Paul's life, we see that Onesimus, references to Onesimus, really come to a period in AD 60 to 62 when Paul was in prison. And because Paul writes to the Colossians and to Philemon at the same time. He sends, in fact, both letters back with a man named Tychicus, who carries back both the letter to the Colossians and the letter to Philemon, as well as Onesimus goes with Tychicus back to Colossae, that we can really narrow this down to a, a really brief period of time in Paul's life. And because both Colossians and Philemon has the tone of Paul's anticipation of release, we can assume that Paul wrote both those two letters, Colossians and Philemon, right near the end of his imprisonment. He knew he's already going to be released. There's enough information being shared about his trial and, and about his status that he knew he was going to be released soon. He writes to the Colossians. He writes to Philemon. He takes both letters, gives them to Tychicus, and Tychicus goes back, bringing him, bringing Onesimus back with him to Colossae. Now, with that in mind, let's look at this progression in Onesimus' life. It begins as a slave. Paul refers to Onesimus as a slave in Philemon verses 15 to 16. Let me actually begin reading in verse 4 of Philemon. Paul says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. He's referring to Philemon here. 
Philemon was the owner of, of Onesimus. And Paul says, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be under compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant or a slave, but more than a bondservant, more than a slave, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even of your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit, some usefulness from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Now, we'll talk about Philemon next time, but tonight it's Onesimus. And we realize here that Onesimus, the one about whom Paul writes, he's a slave. Now, according to history, the the historians say that the Roman Empire generally took their slaves from five sources. Slaves would come from prisoners of war as the Roman legions would go out and conquer other cities. So some prisoners came from that. In fact, a large number came from prisoners of war. Some were descendants of other slaves. Some slaves became slaves because they were sold into slavery because of their debt. In fact, it was not uncommon for those under great burdens of debt to sell themselves into slavery, to cancel out those debts, and then work for their eventual freedom. Some slaves were those made up of orphans, abandoned infants, And some slaves had been captured by the nefarious slave traders. How Onesimus became a slave is not known. We don't know. But we do know that the Roman Empire was known as a slave society because of the economic dependency that the Romans had on slaves and because of the high percentage of slaves in the population according to those or in proportion to those who were free men. The Romans never questioned the legitimacy of slavery. It was accepted as the norm, as it had been for centuries before the establishment of the Roman Empire. And it's important to note also that for slavery in the Roman Empire, it wasn't something that was based on race. For the most part, race didn't play any factor in slavery. Uh, There were many slaves as there were nationalities and you could technically or theoretically be either a slave or a freeman. Doesn't didn't matter upon race. In fact, many slave owners 
possessed slaves of the same nationality. And I would say that that's what we see with Philemon and Onesimus, because both Philemon and Onesimus are from Colossae. They're both natives of that area. Any free man was permitted to own slaves by Roman law. These slaves occupied various roles in society. There were generally two categories. There were the agricultural slaves. They were worse off. They would do the work in the fields. They'd be the shepherds. They'd be the farmers. And then you'd have the domestic slaves. Those would be musicians, entertainers, painters, cooks, maids, midwives, even doctors, teachers, clerks, and secretaries. Slaves were sometimes way better trained and skilled and cared for than even the low classes of the free men. You see, if you're a free man in, in Roman society, there's no safety net for you. If you didn't have work, there's nobody to take care of you. So if you lost work, that was it. And that's how some would incur great debts. And so it wasn't unusual to, to have people at that low level of the, 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 the category of free men to actually sell themselves into slavery with the desire that through slavery, they could actually move themselves up in social status eventually, after a while. Nonetheless, slaves were at the bottom of the level or bottom of the scale of humanity, according to the Romans. Aristotle described a slave as an animate article of property. According to Roman law, slaves were called instrumentum vocale. In other words, speaking tools. They were tools that actually, that spoke. That's kind of how they referred to them. Their status was just above that of livestock. Slaves fetched different prices due to their nationality, and that was, to, that was based on, on how hard they could work. And slaves who were from Syria were considered to be the best because they were typically larger, bigger, and stronger just because of that. Slaves from the region of Phrygia and Onesimus is from this area were considered some of the worst. And in fact, one ancient proverb said that a Phrygian slave is the better and more serviceable for a beating. They didn't like the Phrygians because they were lazy and tended to be rebellious. And certainly it appears as though Onesimus fit this bill. A slave owner could free a slave. This was called manumission. And it was actually quite common as, as strong friendships would develop between the slave and the owner to the extent that when a slave owner would free his slave, the slave would actually take on the name of the slave owner out of gratitude and honor, and a relationship would even continue after that. And more than that, if your owner was an actual Roman citizen, not just a regular free man, but a Roman citizen then when he released you, you became automatically a Roman citizen. And so that's why some would actually choose slavery with the hope that through the process, they would eventually be moved up in social status and perhaps even sold to a Roman citizen and then freed by a Roman citizen and become automatically a Roman citizen. Manumission also served as an incentive for some slaves to work hard with the idea that they would be released. And so some have said that slavery in that age was really more of a process than a permanent state. We can see even some of that in 1 Corinthians 7. Just a side note here. When Paul writes to the Corinthians, 
He says this, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it. But if you are able also to become free, rather do that. So Paul actually says to the, to, to, to the Corinthians that, listen, if, if you're a slave, listen, you can be a Christian and be a slave. That's okay. But if you have the opportunity to get your freedom, get your freedom. For he who has called in the, the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who is called while free is Christ's slave. You are bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. And what Paul is referring to there is the fact that some would sell themselves to slavery. And Paul is warning against that. He's saying, listen, if you're a slave, be content, though get your freedom if you can. But Paul is negative about the idea of those who would sell themselves to become slaves with the idea of social uh, mobility, of upward mobility in the social status. Paul said, don't do that. Don't do that. That was Onesimus. He was a slave. And according to all Roman customs and norms, he was just a little bit better than the ox in the, in the barn. That's how the Romans would have viewed Onesimus. But it gets worse. He becomes a fugitive. In Philemon 10 to 12, as we read today, we realize that Onesimus is no longer with Philemon. In fact, Paul is taking this extraordinary step of sending him back to Philemon. And Paul says in, in verses 10 to 12 that Onesimus was formerly useless to you. He, he, he had no benefit to, Onesimus, or to Philemon anymore. And now he's in Rome, and Paul's writing to Philemon and Colossae and saying, I've sent him back to you in person. In, in Philemon verse 15, we read this, For perhaps he was, for this reason, separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever. And then in verse 18, we read that if he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. Now, Paul's language doesn't provide enough detail here to be definitive about what had happened but we can make a few general conclusions. First of all, some have wrongly suggested that, that, that Philemon, as a fugitive, was actually caught in Rome and put in prison alongside Paul. There's some, some expositors who will teach that. That's actually wrong. Yes, Onesimus was a criminal and, and he would have been denounced by Roman law, but Roman law said that the slave was to be returned as quickly as possible to the owner, and it was up to the owner to mete out retribution. It was not going to be something that the Romans would fill their prisons with because there were many such runaway slaves. Moreover, they'd never put a runaway slave in the same place as a Roman citizen like Paul was. So Onesimus doesn't come to Paul because he's placed in there by the authorities. That we can be quite certain of. The traditional and best understanding is that this is what had likely happened. Onesimus had stole something from Philemon and then had fled to Rome in order to melt away into the, the mass of humanity, the millions of people there in the city of Rome. That's probably the best way to understand it. Uh, Philemon wanted to get away from anywhere close to the region of Colossae where he could be identified by face. 
to get away far enough so that he wouldn't be identified and he would be in a large population. Slaves would sometimes actually have a ring around their neck that they couldn't remove, an iron ring that actually had a little uh, an engraving on there that said, this, slaves belong, this slave belongs to so-and-so, return him as soon as he is caught. So that they would be identifiable unless they could get that, that uh, collar off of them. But the best way to understand it is Onesimus fled to Rome away from Colossae, or perhaps he was doing business for Philemon somewhere there in the Roman Empire. Perhaps he was even carrying money for Philemon. We don't know. He was on business, perhaps, and then he left and, and didn't return to Philemon and instead fled to Rome with Philemon's money. And Rome would provide that great opportunity to disappear, to melt into the melting pot that Rome was. It's kind of like Los Angeles today. You want to get lost? I mean, there's a lot of people here, uh, or some large city, and you could certainly do that. And it is very possible that this had even happened before Paul had even got to Rome in his imprisonment, that Onesimus had even been there for a while, living it up, living in the pursuit of his own joy and liberty. We, we just don't know the details. So the question is then, how did these two men come across each other? And that's mysterious as well. We wish we had the details. It's a mystery, but the mystery only adds to the beauty of divine providence. How this lowest of the low, according to Roman standards, would come across this dignified Roman citizen, preacher of the gospel, unjustly imprisoned, soon to be released, the Apostle Paul. He may have sought Paul out, having heard about him from his master, Philemon, who obviously knew Paul. Maybe, maybe Philemon had told Onesimus one day about this great preacher of the gospel. And that stuck with Onesimus. And after he fled to Rome, he remembered. The conscience pricked him and God moved him to seek out this preacher of grace. And if anyone needed grace, it was Onesimus. Or perhaps there was that pastor, Epaphras, from Colossae. We studied him a couple of weeks ago. Epaphras was the church planter at Colossae. And Epaphras himself had traveled the 1,200 miles or so to go to Rome to spend time with Paul. And maybe as Epaphras was walking through the streets, he saw the slave and he said, we need to talk. You need to come with me. And he brought him to Paul and the rest is history. Ultimately, we don't know how they crossed paths, but what we do know is that God brought these two men together. And that leads us to the next stage in this demonstration of grace. Onesimus goes from slave to fugitive to convert. And we read of this in verses 10 and 11. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my imprisonment. In Rome, Paul delivered to Onesimus the greatest proclamation of emancipation. He delivered to Onesimus the good news about Jesus Christ, the good news about the forgiveness of sins and about freedom from sin's tyranny. And what is remarkable here is that you have the Apostle Paul, who during this time in his life is busy writing letters He's busy receiving envoys from the churches 
to get updates on what ministry is, is happening and, and the state of the churches. Paul is busy sending out his, his assistants like Timothy and, and others to, to visit other churches on his behalf. Paul is consumed with the, the, the spread of the gospel and, and he's, he's, he's all, all focused on this. And, and then you have this man named Onesimus who, according to Roman law, was not just the lowest of the low according to, to society, but he was a criminal. He was a fugitive. He was in Rome illegally. He was not to be there. What does Paul do? Paul finds time and compassion for this man. Paul was no respecter of persons. In fact, what's interesting to note, in the the letter to the Philippians, Paul refers to the fact that he's been evangelizing the household of Caesar. Paul is right there in the middle of the Roman Empire, evangelizing the most elite of society. And yet at the same time, Paul will take that same gospel and recognize the need of the human soul, no matter what state it is in, no matter what status of society. And he found time and compassion for Onesimus. Onesimus, understandably, turned out to be no ordinary convert. We see Paul then speaking of Onesimus with some of the most tender language in all of Paul's writings. He calls him my child. He says, this Onesimus was once useless to you, but now he is useful both to me and to you. And verse 12 is is amazing. He says, I have sent him back to you in person. He says this to Philemon. He says, I have sent him back to you in person. I've sent back my very heart. That's who Onesimus was to Paul. He even says in verse 13, I so wanted to keep him with me. We see here the amazing transformation that takes place in Onesimus' life because of grace. He goes from a thief. He goes from a fugitive, a lawbreaker, looking to Rome as the place where he can pursue his own freedoms and, and, and what not all. And now he is this example, this beautiful example of a true convert. He defines what it means to become a Christian. He defines what it means to, to love grace, to, to love the Lord Jesus, to serve others. This is Onesimus. So as one commentator said, Onesimus is therefore the great the supreme example of the transforming power, you could say the transforming preaching of Paul's friendship. The power lifted a criminal of the slave class to the level, to the heights of the innermost circle of Paul's love and friendship. That leads us to this fourth, fourth point, his progression from a slave to a fugitive to a convert and now to a brother, and this is powerful. You see, Roman law required slaves to be returned to their owners, who then had the authority to punish them as they deemed necessary. One, uh, one commentator said this, Roman law was more cruel than Greek law and practically imposed no limit to the power of the master over the slave. The alternatives 
of life or death rested solely with Philemon, and slaves were constantly crucified for lighter offenses than this. And if you want to do a little bit of research on this, just, just look up Spartacus. That name's been in the news a little bit, Spartacus. Look up the, the fate that Spartacus met along with 6,000 slaves who had escaped and caused problems for the Romans. They were crucified, 6,000 at one time, along the Appian Way, a major highway going south from Rome. Slave after slave, on cross after cross, 6,000 of them. That was the Romans' response to fleeing and, 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 and becoming fugitives as slaves. But notice what Paul says, and this is so important in understanding part of Paul's theology that will eventually lead to the destruction of the institution of slavery. Notice how Paul appeals to Philemon. He says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a while, that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a beloved brother. And he goes on to say, if you regard me as a partner, accept him as you would me. This was Paul's approach. Paul did not shame or ridicule Philemon, but instead he used something much more powerful to appeal to another Christian brother. He said to Philemon, Philemon, we're throwing out Roman norms here. The Romans would have never called a slave a brother. But Paul said, Philemon, this is a brother. Philemon, he is more than a slave. He is one with you in Christ. There is no distinction. Now, again, that, people wonder why Paul doesn't take a more dramatic action against slavery, against the institution of slavery. If Paul had, it probably would have resulted in the killings of many slaves if they would have tried to follow up on some kind of revolt or revolution. Paul knew that that was not possible within that time frame. But Paul sows the seed, which he knows will be the wisest approach that will exalt the dignity of human beings and put them all on the same level. And he appeals to Philemon and says, Philemon, he is a brother. And so when you receive him back, you must treat him not as a fugitive. You must treat him as a brother. You must treat him as if I came to you. That was Paul's approach. But what's important to note as well is that Paul doesn't just tell Onesimus, Onesimus, you're, you're here, just stay here. I'll cover for you. No, Paul sends him back because this was also important. As Paul, as, as Paul taught, uh, taught Onesimus, he taught Onesimus that you must count the cost of being a believer, a disciple of Jesus Christ, and that includes making restitution for the laws of the land that you have broken, regardless of how you view those laws. And so he sends him back, which was appropriate according to Roman law. And I like what one writer says about this. He says this, the demand of Christianity in Paul's hands was not a simple and easy thing. The genuineness of repentance was shown in the willingness of the convert to make right, even at great cost to himself, the wrongs which he had done in the days before his conversion. We are saved by faith 
and by faith alone. But one of the true tests of the difference between genuine faith and a false substitute for it is the way in which a genuine faith drives men to seek peace with God through the costly effort to make right the wrongs of the past. And, and so this was not just about slavery. This was more about, about, than about slavery. This is about the nature of the Christian life. And so Paul says to Onesimus, look, this is the reality. You stole. You broke the law. And this is what true disciples do. We go and we make it right. We may not like the laws of the land. We may disagree with the laws of the land. But if we have broken those laws as Christians, we need to own up to it. And that's what he sends Onesimus to do. And this too is a shot against or across the bow of slavery because it met the problem not with aggression. It met the problem not with revolution. It met the problem not with revolt. It met the problem not putting lives at stake. It met the problem with Christian charity. It met the problem with grace and showing the superiority even of those who had been sinned against in that they would themselves seek to make all things right. And it's that gospel that will prevail in the end. In fact, Paul writes to Philemon, not only with these words, but he even writes to the Colossian church in verses 9 and, and, and around that, that area, actually verses, I think it's 7 to 9. But notice how Paul also describes Onesimus to the Colossian church. This is not just to Philemon anymore. This is to the whole church in Colossae. He calls Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother. He is faithful, and that shows Paul's great respect for this for this former fugitive. He is beloved. That shows Paul's affection. And he calls Onesimus a brother, showing that for Paul, he saw himself at the same level. No distinction between him and Onesimus. Paul bore warm testimony to the transformed character, says one writer, of the one being returned He placed the best possible construction upon the entire unpleasant past and he pointed out the new spiritual relationship between the master and the slave that the conversion of Onesimus had established and he personally pledged himself to make good any loss that Philemon had sustained. As we look at some of these, and we've got to wrap up our time now, and we'll revisit many of these ideas in more detail when we look at Philemon, but let's just focus on Onesimus and Paul's treatment of Onesimus. When we look at this, I think you can come up with these five principles. First of all, number one, conversion does not cancel out obligations enacted by human authorities. We remain citizens bound by the laws of the land. That's very important. When, when we're saved, it doesn't cancel out our obligations to own up to past crimes. Sometimes people think that, well, if I just get saved, I don't have to confess to the crimes I committed in the past. That's not Paul's approach. Paul says to Onesimus, you've got to take ownership. You've got to take ownership. Number two, it is the responsibility, therefore, to new belie- or of new believers to own up and to make restitution for past crimes they have committed against others. Now, there are no slaves in this, this room here, but you may have committed crimes against others before your conversion. 
things about which you are very ashamed, but you've never owned up to them. You've never confessed them. The example that Paul leaves us, his treatment of Onesimus is that you've got to go back and you've got to make restitution. You've got to attempt to make things right. That's what followers of Christ do. Number three, it is our responsibility as evangelists, as ministers of the gospel, as we bring the gospel to others, it is our responsibility then to intercede on behalf of these new converts to help bring reconciliation with the offended. So understand that as you take the gospel out there, you may, you may come across those who have committed great crimes, great sins against others in their unbelief. Don't just tell the person, well, you've got to go make it right. Say, and I'll be with you every step of the way. Let me know how I can help. This is one of my responsibilities as a minister of the gospel of reconciliation. I will help you reconcile. That's what we need to do as brothers. Number four, that Onesimus was received as a brother, eliminated the, poss- eliminated the possibility of abuse by Philemon. That Paul essentially through this request is saying, you treat him like you would me. That's what a Christian brother does. We'll talk more about that next time. And finally, through Paul's treatment of Onesimus, his love and affection, his view of equality, tells us that the gospel that Paul preached eliminates social, economic, and cultural distinctions among those who embrace it. Christians are all simply to be known as brothers. That's our identity. And efforts to resurrect old distinctions for the sake of division and self-advancement is anti-gospel. That is contrary to what the gospel does. Now, we can enjoy our particular cultural backgrounds. Our dentist doctor here, he glories in his Scottish background. We have sympathy on him for that. You might be Armenian. You might be Russian. You might be from Jamaica. You might be Kenyan. I don't know, does Canadian count as a culture? I don't know. Sure, there we go. We can glory in those things, but only at a very simple level. These distinctions, whether it's economic, racial, cultural, linguistic, are never to come between us. We are known only as brothers. As brothers. Paul said this in Colossians, and understand, this is the Colossian church, and he's mentioning Philemon and, or Onesimus in this context a little bit later on. He said this, you laid aside your old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge. According to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. That's the church and that's what the gospel does. And it was this teaching that laid the groundwork for the abolition of any thinking that would suggest that slavery can be acceptable. Not with this kind of theology. Paul needed to lay the theological groundwork, which then eventually led to our understanding of it today. Finally, just three things in closing. Four, number one, the gospel is just as much good news 
for Paul as it was good news for Onesimus, and it's good news for you too. If the gospel is what Paul preached to Onesimus, the same gospel he used for himself, it means that no matter where you are at in life, you could be like Onesimus. The gospel's for you. You may say, it's too beautiful. You may say, it's, I'm, I'm not worthy of this. You're right. But this is what Paul preached to Onesimus, the same gospel, and it's for you. Number two, go out and make restitution for past sins. That's what we're called to do. And evaluate your lives and ask the question, has this happened in the past with me? Have I made right those wrongs I committed before Christ? And even if they happened after you came to Christ, you need to make restitution. Number three, the spiritual identity of the believer as a brother far exceeds any fleshly status or designation. There is no distinction, and that should never take any kind of distinction between us. should never have a place if we truly are dedicated to the gospel of Paul. Number four, the power of the gospel is not to be sought in the Christian's experience of greater rights, but in the willing surrender of those rights for the glory of God and the spread of the gospel. And that's exactly what Onesimus went and did. It wasn't about, ultimately, pursuing life, liberty, and so on and so forth. It was about doing the right thing so that the testimony of the gospel would shine, would shine brighter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this life of Onesimus. We thank you for all that you did in it and how you left it for us in the pages of Scripture and how it communicates so much to us. We pray we take the right lessons from it, that we would not think of ourselves highly, but would realize that we too, in our unbelief, we're no different than Onesimus as the slave fugitive, the thief. And that, at the same time, Onesimus was no different than we are here today in his state as a believer in Jesus Christ. We see ourselves in Onesimus in those two categories, in his life before conversion and after. And we're one with him. We're one with him in his, in his pre-converted state, in his depravity. No difference, no distinction. And we're one with him in his new state, in his Christian life, because we're one with your son, Jesus Christ, in whom there is no distinction. Father, may this be the thought that controls us as we relate to others and as we look at our lives. May you go with us as we bring this wonderful gospel to a world that is so splintered and shattered and obsessed with distinctions and categories. May we be the people that bring reconciliation. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.